everyone and welcome to a special episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John and with me as always is my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? Still standing, John. How are you? Uh, still standing too. Uh, so it's been a while since our last episode. Of course, we ended sort of season four prematurely, but uh, no worries because we will continue season four this year as well, uh, whenever we decide to be our next episode. But, you know, it's been a while. Nevertheless, we are glad to come back and discuss this episode's topic, which is our favorite films of 2023. So before we start, what did you think of 2023, Jason, in, in uh, 2023 in film? Really impressed. That's uh, the sheer diversity of stories and um, talented filmmakers and with uh, distinct visions um, really came through in 2023. Um, Asian cinema had a really strong year. Definitely on the festival circuit with Ryusuke Hamaguchi and um, Shinya Tsukamoto uh, in the latter half of the year, taking top awards, and um, Hirokazu Koreeda at the uh, start of the year at Cannes Film Festival. So, yeah. And uh, we also saw box office success for Godzilla and The Boy Meheron in the US and the UK. Uh, so, specific to Japanese cinema, seems to be doing a lot better uh, yeah. than Well, in, I mean, uh, is Godzilla years? considered a Japanese film? I haven't seen it. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, this current incarnation of Godzilla, yeah, because we get I think we're getting the American one again this year. Um he's having a dust up with King Kong. Yeah. Oh, you're right. I sorry, I was uh I was having a like a, a brain fart moment. I forgot Godzilla I thought Godzilla Minus One was like a part of the American Godzilla franchise. Oh no, I think it's the uh, Takashi Yamazaki one. It's a so, Japanese one. I forgot. Yeah, you're right, you're right. I was just yeah. for a second I I, I thought because there is an American one coming up, right? Yeah, and there's also a prequel series on um, Amazon, I think. Uh, no, not Amazon. Apple called The Monarch, which uh, has Kurt Russell in it. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. That's uh, that's what I was thinking. I think that's what I was thinking about, and and somehow, but Godzilla Might Twenty is a Japanese film, of course. Which, like I said, I haven't seen it sadly, but uh, I'm looking forward to watching it. Maybe maybe by next time I'll have seen it. I don't know if he would have made my top ten, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, it's getting rave reviews, so hopefully we both uh, get the chance to see it. All right, so I think it's uh, as always. We can uh, start with our top ten, uh, and we can talk about other stuff later on, of course. And to, to remind people what you know, what how we choose our top ten uh, is, you know, obviously it is limited to the films that we've seen uh, this year. It is, you know, we're not paid to do this, so you know, our, our the availability of films that we have and and our time to see them is, you know, perhaps somewhat limited. So you know. We try we try our best to watch as many movies as we can that are current, but obviously we probably have missed, like I already mentioned for Godzilla, we probably will miss some, and that's okay. Uh, and the other rule is that it must be a 2023 film. It must be a film from the current year. It doesn't mean that it has to have exclusively been released this year, but it has to have some sort of major release. So even if it's a slightly older film, as long as it received some kind of major release, either like, you know, home media or theaters or a different country, perhaps. In 2023, that counts for the purpose of our selection. So, without further ado, Jason, why don't you give us your number ten and a very brief, you know, summary of why did you pick this film and what 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 it was that drew you to it? So, I'm immediately going to start by cheating, breaking rules, and um, selecting Nomad, uh, the 1980 Patrick Tam movie, okay. which was on 
the festival circuit last year, and it's still on the festival circuit actually, because it got a 4K remaster. So number it it is it is at the edge of the rules, but just inside, I think by our by our it is technically it does not violate the 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 word of the law. I'm a rule breaker by nature. I just can't help it. But <laughs> in terms of Nomad, definitely the main characters in this are rule breakers themselves. Um, uh, just to give a sort of brief summary of the story, we're looking at love across class boundaries, four beautiful characters, two working class, two upper class, in 1980s Hong Kong, a time when uh, sort of consumerism and Japanese culture is uh, washing away everybody on the island. And uh, yeah, Patrick Tam gives us a bit of social critique on that end, um, but he also gives us uh, a lot of sex and violence uh, amidst the social commentary. Um, and also an appearance from the United Red Army from Japan. Uh, and uh, in this sort of lurid drama, which is pumped up to uh, number 11, uh, which is um, one of the things I really appreciated about this film, it's like this commitment to excess. Um, not quite uh, the levels of the um, Dutch director. Oh, what's his name? Dutch director. Robocop. Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, not quite up to his levels, but definitely... Uh, heading towards a luridness. And I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, we both saw this at the Osaka Film Festival? New York Asian Film Festival. New York Asian Film Festival, yes, yes, yes. And yes, and I, I didn't include it. I think you included it in your uh, top five then, but I didn't, not because I didn't like it, just because it felt like, you know, it didn't, uh, it was a, a re-release or something like that. Yeah, I did include it in my top five. This is actually my first encounter with Patrick Tan. Yeah, and we both said how much we see Wonka and Wai in. Yeah, he was the uh, film editor uh, for Ashes of Time and um, Days of... No, not Days of Being World. Was it Days of Being World? I don't remember. But yeah, I mean, he was also like an assistant director for him initially, and that's how he learned his craft, basically. Yeah, I think it was as tears go by. Oh, anyway, anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like uh, he's considered the mentor of uh, Wong Kar Wai, he emerged in the Hong Kong New Wave, and um, and it is obvious. He's, like uh, his style, I think you can definitely see the delineation between the two. Yeah, because we're going from sort of creaky wuja movies to um, sort of dissecting um, contemporary Hong Kong and uh, Hong Kongers' lives, and uh, yeah, there's uh, heading towards melodrama in his uh, stories, and. It's uh, just such a beautiful um, film to look at, rich in atmosphere. At times it looks like it's a fashion shoot, especially towards the end in the latter sequences. And it uh, just creates this heady atmosphere of um, sex and violence and uh, frenzy, as well as listlessness and uh, rebellion. And it really gives you a feel of the sort of the different areas of Hong Kong, the high class, luxurious uh, settings that the rich characters come from down to the sort of cramped and grimy working uh, class areas, the social housing. And yeah, it gave a sense of time and place and it's really exciting to watch because it was just so visually dazzling. So uh, my number 10 is a film that we both have anticipated for a while and that's Plan 75. Uh, oh, okay. the, the film came out last year, but it didn't make it to the States, at least streaming, or I don't even know if it received a theatrical release in the States, but at least in streaming, it didn't make it out till quite recently, actually. I think this summer, maybe. But yeah, it is, um, you know, a, a film. Is it the debut film of Chia Hayakawa? Uh, I think she had a 
I, it's the solo debut film of Chi Hayakawa, okay. but she works with Hirokazu Koreeda on Ten Years Japan. She had a second. Yes, so so this is based on the short by the same name and with the subject matter. And just to give a brief summary, it is uh, set in a near future Japan where the Japanese parliament has legalized, uh, uh, you might call it assisted suicide for anyone above the age 75, 75 due to a rapid aging population of Japan, which is already sort of a problem right now, I think, let alone in the near future. Uh, and uh, sort of like the film kind of covers like the whole, the it's sort of like a, it provides both a big picture view, but also it, primarily focused on three characters one elderly lady who is sort of like running out of options financially and considers plan 75 uh a government worker who works for the plan 75 and i'm not quite sure what he does i think he's kind of a promoter or he's trying to convince people to take the plan i'm not sure exactly what his job is uh and a filipino immigrant who while being short for money and needing to send money back home she gets a job Working for Plan Seventy Size, cleaning out the corpses after they've committed the uh, the assisted euthanasia or the voluntary euthanasia, uh, and it sort of goes back and forth between that. And it is a very uh, sort of what kind of what we expected, kind of what we had read about, in, especially in the short film. It's a very sort of like slow but also very interesting drama. It is um, uh, there's nothing particularly exciting about it in terms of technical uh, technical aspects, cinematography, sound, and all that, but it is. The, the the stories of the characters the 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 filmmaker allows you to get so close to them that you really start to to identify with them and really kind of it feels as though it's happening to someone you know and I think that's where the film it's most effective. Um, when I first saw this, I don't know if you had a chance to watch it, Jason. Not yet. No. Did you watch the short? I haven't watched the short either. Okay. Um, I think I when I started watching this, I thought it would be much higher on my list, but there's a couple of problems, and I always like to I never forget to mention the problems that I had with it. And like I said, it focuses on three stories, but by far the story of the old lady who's also on the poster is by far the most interesting. Uh, uh, and the other ones are are okay. Again, I, I understand why they're in the film, but they just like I, every time every time they cut to the to them i just like i was just waiting okay when you get back to the old lady again <laughs> uh, and that was kind of essentially that like the whole viewing experience because she was by far had the most interesting stories and it, and you know they never kind of interconnect they sort of meet but it's essentially three short films about the three different characters in this common setting uh, and both well done but like i said the one with the old lady was uh by far the most interesting um uh, and these are not necessarily criticism but observations um uh, that you know the realism of this solution of plan 75 because you can imagine you know like why would they do it is because they have a labor shortage due to the aging population but you think you'd think it's probably better solution to just let more immigrants in right and i know yeah. japan japan has always had a problem with uh with letting immigrants in into its country uh, and sort of like, I wonder, you'd rather <laughs> you'd rather kill your own citizen than let someone else in. And that I, I don't know subconsciously what that says about Japanese culture. Yeah, like uh, a film such as Spoiler Alert for um, Soylent Green uh, establishes a, like a pretty much a near apocalyptic um, setting where you've got the economy in the shambles and overpopulation and um, sort of like mass starvation. <laughs> 
on the horizon and uh, that justifies that solution. Um, and maybe is there any hints of like fascism um, when you get authoritarian dictators? No, 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 no. As far as you can tell, it is essentially modern Japan plus this one law. You don't get okay. that at all. You don't get it at all. There is, um, you never see this in the film. But there is like a brief radio news story that the motivation for this law was that a lot of young people were were attacking were attacking old people in the street. And there was like increased violence against old people because they were being blamed for the economic situation of Japan. Uh, OK, that sounds a little like um, Children of Men in the original novel. Yeah, the, um, one of the one of the uh, themes running through that is like uh, the younger generation basically being nihilistic and um, attacking older people. Yeah, so yeah, that's that's essentially like it's mentioned, but other than that, you don't get that. Like, you don't get that there is a significant difference. And I understand that. Like I said, it's not a criticism. I it's a, but because it is a thought experiment, you're not supposed to, to examine it too seriously. It's this happened. Now let's examine the lives of these people. And I think in that respect, it works very well. It's it's sort of like a, a an examination in a vacuum, in a sense. But I just it was just I just found it fascinating that. That you know, like that, like this, you know, it, it works in Japan because Japan has such a history of very being strict with foreigners and being somewhat xenophobic in a in a at least when it comes to immigration. Uh, yeah. But but it 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 still, I think the film still works regardless of that. Definitely, when I have to check it. All right. Uh, so, what is uh, your number nine, Jason? So my number nine is Oppenheimer, which is a biopic of the physicist and um, the father of the atomic bomb. It shows his time overseeing the creation of the atom bomb at Los Alamos. Um, the post-war period where he's put uh, on trial for being a security risk for alleged commun communist sympathies and op his opposition to the arms race. And it also shows his political enemies and personal ties. And it's all told in a non-linear way as we uh, jump between different time periods, which is something Christopher Nolan, the director and writer, likes to do. And there's also a bit of an objective, subjective slant to certain narrative threads, so we get a bit of the uh, unreliable narrator at points. And uh, this whole jumping around between different uh, temporal locations and um, geographical locations meant that the three-hour running time, uh, essentially watching people in rooms talking a lot, <laughs> flew by quite quickly and um, it became quite gripping because um, it handled the deluge of information through different genres such as like you get the war film slash espionage film with the race to construct the atom bomb uh, before the Nazis and then the Soviets and then we get like the courtroom procedural drama um, and uh, we get a, a political chamber piece as Robert Downey Jr.'s character is campaigning for his own political career and um, at the heart of it is uh, the man who is essentially a genius, but uh, there's the drama about him needing others to protect him. And um, I find that while I never warmed to any of the characters, which is typical of my experience of a uh, Christopher Nolan movie, um, they tend to be more about ideas than uh, actually feeling human beings. Uh, I was really moved by certain sequences in the film, uh, particularly like, like I felt sensations of fear at the barbarity of humanity. Uh, for example, there's a great cameo by Casey Affleck as an intelligence officer who um, hunts down communists. And it's only a small part, but he makes a massive impact because his presence is really chilling. 
He has this skull-like face and his hair plastered down to his uh, um, scalp. And um, it's just really direct and hard in his um, dialogue delivery. And um, when he's described after his interrogation scene with um, Oppenheimer, uh, he's described as killing Soviets with his bare hands. <laughs> and so that's a really colourful description that backed up his presence. Um, but the I suppose the scene that uh, I found most memorable and most horrifying was um, Oppenheimer delivering news of the uh, successful bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to scientists and their families, and everybody just stamping their feet and clapping their hands and cheering in that moment. And um, yeah, Christopher Nolan's definitely playing that scene up for... Um, the horror, um, because like Oppenheimer feels it, the percussive noise overwhelms uh, the speakers and the bright lights that are shining on him overwhelm the screen. And yeah, I felt the terror of the mob in that um, sequence. Yeah, like this is all anchored by a great performance by Cillian Murphy because he's got the whole gamut of um, emotions running across his face as he's encountering all of these um, uh, situations. Uh, what did you think of the senator's assertion that um, Oppenheimer and the people like him? I, I don't know how he. I don't remember how he said it, how he said it, but they, they sort of like they they need the assertion that they they need people like him, basically the ones who would use the bomb, so they can hide they can hide uh, behind sort of like that facade of pacifism, while full well understanding sort of like the necessity of something like the atomic bomb. I forget exactly how he says it, but you know, like he says, like, oh, he 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 needs to be he needs people like us or something like that. I think he says it. Yeah, I, I think there's a scene where the president's like, they all remember me as the guy that dropped the bomb, and uh, I think this push and pull in this film about um, people using people essentially and not, um, yeah, like Oppenheimer's using military resources to realize his scientific ambitions, but you definitely get a sense that he's very naive. And he needs other people around him to protect him from sort of politicians and the military who will be willing to use his um, inventions to destroy things. So uh, I I don't think it's that clear cut. You've got scientists using military men and military men using scientists. And it's just showing the sort of complexity of all these different relationships that you can't have advancement without sort of the negativity that comes with it. Yeah, my I I, th I think I I would agree with you with that. Um, all right. Anything else about Oppenheimer? I'd say there. Uh, there's de yeah. There's one misstep. Is like there's a particular sex scene in the film which didn't need to be in there. Um, but but the rest of it, yeah, the rest of it was fine. Like, I would definitely rewatch this again just to see how it's constructed on a narrative level because like, the way it's like a. Just a collage, like collage of information thrown at you, and it's. Legible. Did it remind you a little bit of decision to leave in terms of like the story structure? Uh, it's been like over a year since I've watched Decision to Leave. Um, okay, uh, never I've... mind. That's that's all right. That's all right. Uh, it yeah. just I think both directors kind of like went for something complex there. Yeah, I tend to think of Decision to Leave as being predominantly um, real time action. Okay. So uh, my number nine. So I definitely did try to include a couple of unexpected films uh, here, uh, and uh, and my number nine is a new, the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle animated film, Mut Mutant Mayhem. Okay. Which I I don't know if it received a theatrical release. I might have been like a streaming only thing, 
uh, for, for Paramount. But it's sort of like it functions as a reboot of the franchise, of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles franchise. Uh, that was, uh, I think, um, by Seth Rogen, like at least his company as a producer. Uh, and the story is, again, sort of like, a, it's still relatively PG-13. Of course, I don't know if you know anything about the original um, comic book of the TMNT. It was extremely violent and dark and gritty. Uh, but very few adaptations have sort of like kept that spirit uh, of, the, of the original comic books. Uh, but this one is again. It's it's primarily M for children, but I think it's it's just adult enough that I think anybody can enjoy it. And it was extremely well done. So it is, you know, it is the four the four turtles uh, played by some kid actors. I don't know, but Splinter the rat is played by Jackie Chan, which I found it extremely amusing. Okay, cool. And uh, it you know it's uh, it's uh, you know it's sort of like a like a new origin stories. The the one difference is that now the mutants uh, Splinter sort of forces the turtles to stay hidden because he is extremely. Uh, fearful of humanity and he doesn't he doesn't think that humans will accept them because of his past experiences so so the teenage uh, mutant turtles uh kind of kind of stay in the sewer most of the time and only go out at night to like get food and steal food from grocery stores and whatnot but their main desire is just to be regular teenagers and i found that extremely moving especially how they could not connect with pop culture like they have you know, they have cell phones and they have fake social media accounts and all that. And they just, you know, they just, which is extremely ironic how much we condemn social media. But for, for these, uh, which are in all but body, they're regular human teenagers. Uh, and th that's all they want is to go to high school and participate in all the stupid high school drama that normal kids uh, do. Uh, but they can't because Splinter forbids them. One day they meet April O'Neil, which is another big character. Um, and they like she convinces them to uh, like solve crimes in secret uh, until and they do that until they kind of meet with some other mutated animals, which obviously in, in, in fact, in, in true keeping up with the series, they want to kind of destroy all humans because they are uh, bitter and and uh, and think like a world run by mutants will be better. And the, of course, the, the teenage mutant ninja turtles have to stop them. And, you know, it's a regular action movie from there. But the one thing that really stands out for this movie is the animation style. It feels like, like this strange mix between stop motion and pastel colors or, or like crayons. I don't know how to describe it. I encourage you to look it up because it, it is so fascinating. Like the sound design, uh, the soundtrack is great, but it's just, it's maybe unlike anything else that I've seen in recent years. And I'm not an expert in animation, so maybe that's a big claim to make, but it is truly unlike uh, anything else that I've seen. And, and like, I was very impressed that this, uh, you know, like children's, primarily directed to children's, something that didn't really receive any any promotion, at least not that I know of, like had so much care and thought put into it. It feels, I'm pretty sure it's not hand-drawn, but it really feels hand-drawn. It feels like there was a lot, a lot of care that went into making this, both the story, which is, again, simple, perhaps directed to children, but still very well-crafted, very well-paced, very well-thought. And, the animation is just, I think, maybe the best animation that I've seen uh, in, in recent years. I like a, uh, I think Spider-Man gets a lot of praise. The new Spider-Man movies get a lot of praise for their animation. But I think this this one also like deserves a lot of praise. And I think because it's less publicized, it's not getting that praise. Yeah. Perhaps uh, it didn't get a theatrical release. Um, how did you watch it? Uh, I watched on. Oh. I have a subscription to Paramount+. Plus. Yes, you did mention that earlier. Yeah. Okay. Right. 
definitely yes. worth for me to track down because I've still got the um, action figures that released in the nineties, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I yeah, just look at some screenshots or YouTube clips. Like you see, you see what I mean. It's it's a very unique style of animation that I just I just haven't seen it anywhere. And again, the caveat that I'm not an animation expert, but I just haven't seen it anywhere. Yeah. It's curious. We had a pretty good year for animated films. Um, beyond uh, Hayao Miyazaki's latest, we also yeah. had the Super Mario Brothers movie, which took the global box office by storm. I don't. I didn't. I didn't see that one. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. But uh, yeah, teen, I remember like a lot of chatter around Teenage Mutant um, Hero Turtles or Ninja Turtles. Um, a lot of positivity around it. So I'll definitely try and track that one down. Yeah, but I mean, the Super Mario Brothers is just a in terms of animation is just a like conventional 3d uh like cg yeah. cg yeah okay i mean that, that's not to say it's bad or anything but i'm just saying it didn't stand out yeah all right uh so what is your what is your number eight jason yeah my number eight doesn't innovate in any way shape or form it's um the killer by david fincher okay and um i saw this one by netflix although it had some festival play and a brief theatrical release and uh, that uh, the killer is based on a comic book, I believe. Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. The film stars Michael Fassbender as the titular killer. Um, he's called methodical. He's thorough and ruthless. Sounds like a David Fincher movie. <laughs> the execution of his movies to me felt like exactly like Alain Delon in Le Samurai. Yeah, the his professionalism and sort of his uh even of, his uh, acting style i think I, I mean at least that's just it's been a while since i've seen the samurai so who knows but but that's what it seemed to me so near silence and precise movements yeah his games and, as well yeah and uh yeah just like uh the samurai um something goes wrong with a hit and uh he has to uh well, he finds himself betrayed by people in the underworld, only uh, in the killer. Uh, he has to go on a warpath uh, to save his life and the life of the woman he loves after she's attacked. So uh, we've referenced Le Samurai, which uh, shows that there's really nothing new that the film's trying to do in terms of story. It just looks really great, um, simple and stylish, and the performers are immensely watchable. I can listen to Michael Fassbender narrate an entire movie. Uh, which is what I did <laughs> with the killer. He's very um, entertaining to listen to, and um, yeah, I just found it a lot of fun. Um, Fincher's leveraging his cold and concise style into comedy moments. I think um, great example of that is he uses Fassbender's um, narration to sort of um, uh, puncture the self seriousness for comedy. Um, so you'll have Fassbender say, "Stick to your plan, anticipate, don't improvise," and. Um, fight only the battle you're paid to fight he's very serious when he delivers this and um you'll often see uh the hit go wrong because uh it'll be interrupted by something in the environment like well that's that's what starts the whole movie right it's he's, he's supposedly a great killer but there's one hit goes wrong right yeah because he just mistimes it he's distracted by what's going on in front of him with the target and uh, yeah, there's another great scene where a dog just pops up and chases him around uh, the um, setting. Uh, but also the narration sometimes reminded me of like the stuff you'd hear in a watch commercial and other times sounded like sort of macho influencers and uh, the way they um, sort of speak and perceive the world. And by the end of the film, he's contradicted everything he claims to believe in. So I find it quite amusing on that level. I did uh, think... There were some tiresome interactions, such as um, Tilda Swinton 
the Tilda Swinton sequence where she's telling a joke and it's like a good five minutes and I'm not sure if that had any value. Um, what what was the joke? I I I remember the scene, but I don't remember. It was a joke that is like a pretty common joke, right? Like the bear, yeah. the bear, which is the hunter. It's just, it is strangely homophobic. To kill the bear. It is a strangely yeah. homophobic joke if you really think about it. Which you know it doesn't bother me because it's it's in character, right? But but it's it's yeah, I agree. It's it felt totally like like what's the point that you're trying to make? Absolutely, yeah. And it could have There's... been made <laughs> shorter. And also, it's a, it's yeah. a joke that I knew. Like that's why I like remember so well. It's a joke that I already knew when I watched the film that I had heard before. Yeah. So after that scene, was just like, well, why was that in there? Okay, let's move on. But overall, it looks great. Um, and it took me by surprise because I was wrapping Christmas presents up at the time. Uh, like, and then within the first five minutes of it, I just dropped everything, just focused on the screen. Great flooding fight scenes. Um, which get heart racing, um, and you've got that black humor running throughout it all. And uh, yeah, I would watch another film with Michael Fassbender narrating, um, like his actions. Uh, perhaps maybe not killing people. Perhaps he will take the same self seriousness to I don't know cleaning windows or something. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, that's my number eight. How about uh, you, John? Uh, well, just a com- like I did watch The Killer and I enjoyed it, but it, it didn't make quite that much big of an impression in. Uh... For me, it just it felt like you know it's an okay action thriller film. All right, so number eight, I've gone with another one unexpected, and this one is unexpected only because it was made by Netflix, and I think Netflix did absolutely nothing to promote it. Although I think it's a great film, and it's called They Cloned Tyrone. Oh, I've seen that one. Yeah, and uh, it stars John Boyega, uh, Jamie Fox, and Tiona Paris, who are pretty well known cast. Like I don't know why Netflix didn't do that, but it's it's sort of like a uh, an an homage to black exploitation and other stuff. It's not just black exploitation, but that's a this is like a big part of it. And it's it's an extremely fun to fun film uh, to watch. It's 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 humorous. It's not it's not ha ha funny, but it is like almost witty and and sort of like lighthearted at times, even though it deals with a very very dark and serious uh, serious sort of like theme subject matter. And just to give a brief fast summary, it's uh, it it stars like it Fontaine, who played was played by John Boyega, who's a a, a a a drug dealer in a predominantly black neighborhood. I think it's in L.A., although I'm not a hundred percent sure. Is it uh, Detroit? Maybe Detroit. I don't know. I, it's a fictional place. I don't think the place that they live in is real, but I don't know where it's supposed to be close. But anyway, it's a he, a, a pimp named Slick Charles, which I think is a fantastic name, like great, like out of a '70s movie. Uh, and uh, one of his prostitutes, who's played by Tiana Paris, stumble upon this sort of like massive conspiracy where a group of scientists are conducting exper- experiments uh, uh, right underneath uh, his neighborhood. Uh, so he and uh, like his friends sort of embark on this adventure to try to like first of all discover what is going on and what the hell is uh, all this sort of like very mysterious uh, happenings, and and then to stop it eventually once they discover that it has a, a relatively sinister uh, motivation behind it. Uh, and it's all paced so excellently. The mer- the mystery of the conspiracy, and I do love a good conspiracy. I think it's hard to tell a really good conspiracy story, but once you get it right, I think it works so, so well. And the, the pacing is just fantastic. The cinematography of the movie is fantastic. I did not expect to like this movie that much. I thought this would be just a silly, fun comedy movie to watch, and I was just, from, like, I think 10 minutes in, I was I was like, why the hell have, not, have, have I not heard of this movie? It was just so fun to watch. Uh, and like I said, it's funny, it's witty. Uh, it's a bit over the top, 
that will be like, and I tend to not like sort of like a bit over the top, a bit on the nose, but this is forgivable because it is specifically trying to pay homage to that kind of style of filmmaking, right? You don't, you know, you don't watch an exploitation movie or a black exploitation movie for subtlety, right? Um, There's also like a James Bond type of villainy happening all over the place. Uh, it has a, you know, a great soundtrack, great cinematography, just all, all around, like really good film. Again, it has some flaws, but you, it's just a, so fun to watch that you kind of can't easily overlook those flaws. Yeah, I watched it, it um, around the time of its release, and I remember not being that impressed. Perhaps I was looking for something similar to Black Dynamite, which is... Uh, even more tongue in cheek. This one, it, felt, it, this is less uh, so. This is less, a yeah. lot less like that. It's very serious and it's very dark. And um, I felt like the pacing was almost inert at times. Okay. And um, felt a little, little overly long. I'm surprised you you heard of it. So you're right that the, there is a part, sort of like in the second act, where it drags a little bit. Like I said, it's not a perfect movie. It's a, it has a a few flaws. Yeah, essentially, it's like a crisis and how to you know spread word about conspiracy. Yeah, and, uh, it's uh, it reminded me also like a, a film with sort of like a similar science fictional background and similarly like you know like issues about race or that uh, the one with um, uh, what is it called uh, the one with the the one with people and horses who people turn into horses. I uh, horses horses. Um. <laughs> I, uh, who's the director? Uh, he's a, he was it? also a new director. It stars Lakeith Stanfield. Uh, oh, sorry, to bother seen you. sorry to bother you. Okay. Sorry to bother you. I haven't you. seen yeah. that one. Very, very similar. Anyway, okay. So that, that was my number eight. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's available in the UK on Netflix and in everywhere the US. On Netflix, so yes. Everywhere on Netflix. I'm surprised you heard of it. Like, I had not heard of it at all. Like, I think Netflix did. And I saw it online a lot of people had like a similar issue with the film that they had not heard of it. Yeah, I think it was on the front page when I was browsing and I saw Jamie Foxx's name. And okay, I thought, that I should see. be funny. I see. All right. So uh, my number seven is Mountain Woman, which was screened at the New York Asian Film Festival. And I had the opportunity to interview director Takeshi Fukunaga. So visit my blog and uh, look at the interview if you're interested. <laughs> Uh, this is a female coming-of-age tale told with a difference. Um, it takes place in 18th century Tohoku, northern Japan at the time of a famine, and um, it focuses on the daughter of a family of outcasts who finds herself persecuted by her fellow villagers after um, rice is stolen from the village uh, food store. So. Uh, I think like a, a lazy comparison would be like um, uh, the Ballad of Narayama, but with much more um, magical realism. Uh, what I really liked about the film was it's a variation on a theme we've seen so often before, and uh, uh, setting it in the past um, brings its own risks because uh, you know you might be on a limited sets, limited budget and so forth. Um, but actually what we get are r- really impressive recreations of a village, um, costumes. We've got an A-list cast griming it up as the villagers turning on each other as hunger encroaches on their community. And um, 
yeah, at the centre of it is the poor outcast family. And um, we see a web of social connections establish and break around them as everybody um, begins to um, turn on them and the drumbeat of prejudice um, grows louder and louder. And the prejudice comes from the fact that their family are outcasts because a grandparent, a grandfather had um, committed a crime earlier on in the generation, um, earlier on um, in history. And they all have to labour under that. And you see, you get a really stirring depiction of how they're discriminated against. And um, yeah, sort of like seeing evil um, emerge from a group mindset as people dehumanise this family. It's really chilling. You see, and um, there's a nauseating sting of prejudice um, from various villages and sort of like a duplicitous behaviour that make you uh, hate various people. Uh, but you can also understand why the villagers are turning on um, the characters because, you know, the whole issue of the famine is brought up so really well um, through dialogue and through visuals. And yeah, you just get a sense of how brutal life was. Actually, um, I think it's quite interesting. There was a Korean film released late 2023 called Concrete Utopia, which deals with similar themes. Uh, yes, I actually wanted to watch that one. I, I, cause I, cause I was, you know, towards, you know, towards the end of the year, like I said, I've always tried to like search that came up in my search, but it, there was no, that might be, that might come up in our 2024 because as, uh, as far as I know, it has not been released in the West yet. Oh no, it has, I, I'm sure it's, it's hit festivals and it might have no, 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 had a brief no, When I mean released in the West in a way that it's accessible to, to, to the general public, I'm sure it has made its way into festivals. I think it's had a brief cinema run. Uh, okay. Don't quote me on that though. Okay. All right. Maybe maybe a few select cinemas, but um, it stars yes. Lee Byung Hyun, right? Yep. Uh, yeah. As in a bittersweet life. And, yes. Um, yes. I saw. Yeah, I saw the devil. Uh, yeah. So so that's yeah. So I yeah I definitely I was definitely tried to get this one, but there was no no place I can. Uh, there's no place it has not received a wide release in the West. At least I can say that much. Yeah, I think you, I think you'll like Concrete Utopia because it deals with similar themes uh, mountain, uh, to, to Mountain Women's and like um, group mindsets and um, people falling under the sway of sort of maybe um, the worst of human behavior and uh, Lee Hyun Byung plays a kind of guy thrust into the role of an authoritarian leader and you can see why he has to make the hard decisions that he um, makes. And uh, yeah, there are really chilling scenes of show trials as uh, people turn on each other. So it's got like a lot of um, social comments and impressive disaster movie scenes. But back to Mountain Woman, we have um, impressive scenes of the natural world surrounding um, the main character. And uh, we can see like how it inspires um, sort of um, faith in nature and um, segues into the supernatural elements of the story. So. Uh, it doesn't do anything uh, massively new in terms of um, the finale of the story. I think it's kind of expected, but it's still massively atmospheric because of the sets and the locations and the sort of commitment to uh, filming in the wild countryside and on the uh, wild uh, mountain ranges where you have natural light and um, all the weathers affecting um, the characters. Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed the great. mood of the film, the style, the the just general like the approach that he took to telling that story, which I said it reminded me a lot of Aguirre at the time. Yeah, just relentlessly grim. 
Yeah, not 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 again, not the subject matter or the the specifics of the storytelling, just like the, the overall tone. But I do I will say what I said back then that the the con like the 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 motif of a virgin sacrifice is a Western motif. I'm not. It's not really common found in like Asian. So so I found it strange. But again, it's 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 a very minor observation. Yeah, I mean, it could be an aspect of history we don't we that isn't well publicized or we don't know too much about. Absolutely, and you know, like maybe it it, it happened rarely, and this is one of those occasions. So it's, again, it's it's something that felt to me a little bit out of place, but that's because I I associate that particular like story motif so much with like Western, uh, Western civilization. But again, that's just that's more of a personal uh, thing than uh, something uh, something like critical of the movie. All right, uh, so my number seven is Monster by Hirokazu Koreeda. Ooh. And um, I really enjoyed this film. So I've talked in the past about, uh, well, I obviously enjoyed it because I included my top 10, but <laughs> I've talked in the past how I often appreciate Koreeda on an intellectual level, but his movies bore me personally. I just have a hard time watching it. Like I talked about Shoplifters. The only reason I finished Shoplifters is because I was in a theater and I was too embarrassed to live midway. I mean, fantastic, great film, but it bored the hell out of me. But this one, I might be, as far as I, from what I can tell, the only Koreeda film that I was just th- like on the edge of my seat from minute one. To give a brief summary, it's uh, it tells the story. It's it's sort of like a Rashomon type of story. It tells it tells the same event from three different point of view: the mother, the teacher, and the son, uh, who whose name is Minato, and uh, it starts with him acting weird and showing up at home and e- at injuries. Uh, for which his mother blames the school and specifically one particular teach, new teacher in the school who she believes has been acting violently, violently uh, towards, uh, towards her son. Uh, so she goes to school frequently and demands that the school take action uh, against either the teacher or, or as a whole, but she finds the school's responses very infuriating and almost uh, like strange from the point of view of the mother, which is the first part of the film. Uh, then we begin to understand more of the story as we switch to the like the same events, but from the point of view of that teacher, which is revealed that he never did anything wrong to the students. Uh, but of course, it still li- leaves a lot of questions uh, answered. Um, but wh- we get the whole story when we finally the third act, where we see Minato's, those of the kids' point of view, when we finally uh, figure out everything that's happened, and it particularly involves his friendship with another boy at the school, who's sort of like. Uh, lives under an abusive father. Uh, and it's, it's just a great film altogether. Just the pace is excellent. It's told like the, the, the approach, which like I said, it said it's, it's like Rashomon, but it's also very different from Rashomon in the way it approaches. So like the different perspectives to the same story. It, it just creates that mystery so, so well, unlike a lot of films that I've seen. Uh, and it's also like, I think it just thematically tells the story of, you know, like how kids, like the nature of, uh, how kids can receive abuse, which is from peers, from teachers, from parents, etc. It's 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 a sort of multifaceted, uh, you know, uh, e- examinations of that particular aspect of of child development. Uh, and like I said, it's he it gets bonus points because it's it's a Korean film that didn't I didn't find that boring. Uh, but this could have easily been number one, but it is number seven for one particular film is that while the first two parts. Like the point of view of the mother and the teacher do a fantastic job to sort of create the mystery. Once we finally get to the explanation, I found it very, very disappointing. I wrote down in the notes, 
it's like promising a car chase and then delivering a kid in a tricycle. <laughs> it was I found the ending so and the explanation of all the sort of like the mystery that had been set up in the first two parts. It felt like there would be something very nefarious and dark and mysterious. And what we get is felt like so, so, so tame by comparison. Again, I think the film still has a lot of, excuse me, a lot of value and, and it doesn't diminish the themes or the message that it's trying to convey. But just from just purely from like a narrative point of view, the ending felt just so disappointing to me that it was good enough. I had to include it in my top 10, but it could have easily been so much better if the filmmaker decided and i think i've noticed that koreeda doesn't like likes to remain hopeful and doesn't like to go too dark at least from the films that i've seen and i think the film definitely suffered from that like i think i think it, it deserved a darker ending than what we got i yeah did you get I a chance to see it? it i did um i uh i reviewed it as well as concrete utopia as part of the chicago international film festival and um i had a Different reaction to you. I really enjoyed the first two parts of the film because there was a lot of mystery involved. Uh, and like the depiction of uh, Minato sort of breaking away from his mother and exhibiting this strange behavior, which really became really harrowing. I, was I agree, really... absolutely. And uh, like the more the blanks were filled in, the more obvious the film became. And I think it didn't help that I was kind of aware of um, the subject matter going into it because like, um, it had won certain awards which revealed certain plot points. So, um, and I felt like <sighs> there was no room for ambiguity or exploration. It was just like, um, like a lot of obvious choices were made and, um, it's kind of like being guided by the hand. Um, and, uh, also like the showiness of the sort of, um, uh, Russian doll-like structure of the stories we're borrowing down to the truth kind of um, kept me at a distance in a way I don't find with other Koreeda films because other Koreeda films uh, tend to take place uh, in real-time settings and um, tend to favour more naturalism in um, depicting events. Um, I find the third part, I agree with you, it's really frustrating because it's truncated. Um, Please give me more of the kids. They're fantastic performers. Um, you can't just end on, oh, hey, you know, they're just going to go off back to their daily lives after like traumatic. Because, no, I, I agree. Yeah, it was so disappointing. It, it seemed, it kind of seemed like a cheat just to end, leave it on an open ending as well, especially when the teacher's in sort of this perilous situation where his life has been <laughs> ruined, essentially. Um, yeah. Uh, but I chose, I, I chose to see it as like the kids have had. Their agency taken away by the adults, uh, throughout the film, and um, and we're giving a, we're given a sort of firm perspective as to what is happening, and um, this is the one moment in the film where the kids are, uh, uh, you know, left free to do what they want, to choose what they want, and we as an audience can um imagine a more hopeful future for them. Yeah, but like like a lot of things did not get resolved, like the the kid with the abusive father that seemed you know like he yeah. still has to go back to that. As far as we can Absolutely. tell, right? It's a, yeah, yeah, like it, I said, it, it, it seems like a cheat. It seems like a cheat just to leave it there. It feels like they just didn't think about the third act, basically, in my opinion. Yes, but a lot of care and attention went into the first two acts, and then we get less time with the children who are at the center of the story. And um, it would have been nice to have had more time with them. 
All right. Um, yeah, this was not written by Koreeda, so probably, yeah, this was, um, I think it was Yuji Sakamoto. I want to say Yuji Sakamoto. But anyway. Okay. So what is your number six, Jason? My number six is New Religion by Keishi Kondo, um, independent filmmaker. This was um, uh, screened at Osaka Asian Film Festival. Um, and uh, when I say he's an indie filmmaker, this film, New Religion, was part crowdfunded, I believe. And um, it was made by the cast and crew in between their regular jobs. And um, yeah, I heard good things about it uh, going into the film because it impressed um, uh, uh, audience members and critics uh, like uh, Freckfest and so forth. And it didn't disappoint. Um, essentially, the story is about a woman who loses her daughter in marriage um, in tragic circumstances. And years later, she's living in a depressive state while working as a call girl. And living with a DJ who struggles to keep her in touch with reality while she remains haunted by her loss. And um, she gets hired by a client who uh, has a creepy fetish for photographing people. And his photography may or may not steal people's souls and may or may not cause rebirth. And uh, may or may not put her in touch, uh, put the call girl in touch with her nihilistic side and the ghost of her daughter. So, um, it's lots of imagery around moths and, um, rebirth and, uh, things like that. And, um, it's not explained 100% clearly, um, but it leaves this really, um, mysterious, ambiguous and haunting atmosphere that invites different readings, all of which are menacing. And, um, I think, uh, just contributes to this sense of like, we're witnessing the end of the world, um, on screen. And um, that's brought out further by sort of drive-by exposition of news reports detailing Japan's economic decline and um, rising crime. And uh, the film is full of visions of people from broken backgrounds being exploited. And yeah, um, like we get cold urban locations where human intimacy is at a minimum and uh, human warmth is uh, uh, like non-existent. And uh, we get... um stark lighting so apocalyptic reds and deathly blues that are really eerie and unnerving and um electronic score so we've got a director um a condo he's got this very strong vision that he brings to the screen it's very affecting um just very unnerving and um the visuals and atmospherics put me in mind of um kyoshi kurosawa's apocalypse trilogy like cure charisma and pulse and um there was like some aspects of Shinya Tsukamoto. Um but it's still very it still feels like a very uh, original and fresh work. And um in a year where I found many um contemporary horror films aside from Barbarian to be staggeringly dull. Um like the new Pet Cemetery was awful. The new Exorcist was awful. <laughs> um New Religion was absolutely absorbing full of great images um great disturbing oral landscape great performances from the entire cast and it really stood out to me as um a really memorable film of 2023 and i want to see more from director keisuke kondo and he's working on a short film right now i think you meant you did you include this in your top five in the osaka episode i did yes okay i think i remember did, uh, you, i don't think you had the chance to see it no no i don't it definitely did not uh, this might be a horror film uh, you would get into because it's it's a well, it's a bit of social realism to it. It doesn't go yeah. too far. It, 
into any of like the stereotypical you know body horror roots or anything like that. It's a lot of psychological stuff. So it's kind of like how much of this is uh, the main character stuck in a, a fugue state from mourning, how much of it is real. It gives a, a lot for the audience to um, try and interpret and think about. All right. Uh, so my number six is perhaps one of the most anticipated films of the year, and that is The Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it tells the story of the Osage murder in the twenties in the in Oklahoma, I think, uh, and primarily focused on William King Hale, who was on like a, a one of the rich landowners uh, uh, in the region, who's trying to steal the oil oil rights from the Osage tribe. Uh, and it focuses also on Ernest Burkhardt, who's played by DiCaprio, who is King's hitman and is married uh, married one uh, Osage woman, uh, Molly, who's played by Lily Gladstone, who's received a lot of praise for her. Uh, for her performance in this movie. Uh, and as, as the whole thing is part of sort of Hale's larger plot to kind of like, again, steal as much of the oil rights as he can uh, from, the, uh, from the Indians or from the Osage specifically. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a very typical Scorsese film. It's, it's, it's a complex. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, he has a gift for telling relatively complex stories, complex in the sense of like the, the relationship and the interactions with the characters in, in simplified ways. And he does that great in this job it's, it's just a solid film and it goes by very fast despite being three plus hours uh of runtime it's uh it's funny at times like like a typical scorsese humor but it's mostly just you see uh leonardo dicaprio who in the film appears to be genuinely in love with uh, his wife molly make sort of like decisions just just for the sake of being agreeable with his uncle uh, and you know, commits a series of murders and acts that is just like essentially drive him to the point of no return. I did not like perhaps how romanticized it is, uh, and uh, the the relationship between him and and Molly. May, maybe it was true. Maybe that's how it was. But in my opinion, uh, DiCaprio was too likable in the film. Like he does terrible things, but it is really, really hard the way Scorsese do it to to, to think badly about him. Uh, you think bad about like pretty much every other white character, most other white characters in the film, except for DiCaprio. He somehow ends up being likable from beginning to end, and I don't know, I don't know how I felt about that. But otherwise, it's a solid film. There's a, there's really not much else I can say. It's just uh, is typically typical of what we expect of Scorsese with this particular story. Like, I like the ending, how he makes a cameo to sort of like uh, read the obituary of Molly. You know set in some some unspecified future time uh and it was just a radio play radio play that's right so probably in the 50s based on the on the whole uh 50s or 60s based on like how the whole thing is presented but yes it's a radio play uh apparently like i read burkhardt lived till the 80s uh and uh uh his children threw his ashes over a bridge or something like that because because of how much they just <laughs> they disliked him uh but um but yeah, like I said, I think they did. I don't know. I mean, it may have been true. Maybe the, the everything was. Maybe he was a likable person. Maybe their relationship with Molly was uh, genuinely a loving one. But I don't know. I don't know how I felt about that. What did you think of the film? Um, I thought it was a really impressive achievement at uh, recapturing that age and which is true of, of Scorsese. It's just expected. I, I I hesitate to bring that because we we expect that of Scorsese in period films, right? He's done that always. Yeah, 
this is an Apple film, isn't it? So they've yeah they've managed to get quite considerable uh, budget by the looks of things because it just looks. I mean, he like he had a pretty considerable budget with the Netflix one, right? And the, he's all he's always had. I haven't that. seen the Irishman. I haven't seen the Irishman. Yeah, we talk about nineteen twenties America, and um, I think that. Like the story is very much, or the film is very much a film for our age, where America's sort of reckoning with its past and how it's treated um, sort of Native Americans and also um, the other minorities, because you get um, sort of uh, newsreel footage of the burning down of black towns. Um, it shows like how uh, racism can embed itself in a, in a system through the actions of um, different individuals, and like the whole depiction of it just made my skin crawl just like pure evil radiating off the skin um radiating off the screen but it's it, did you strike to how casually and i'm not saying this is a criticism i think that was the right approach because it was very casual at the time but how casually sort of like depicted in the film it was cold like yeah, the execution the, scenes the, absolutely the, bone chilling that's right yeah but uh, they also mention, like very briefly in passing, the Oklahoma massacre, which wasn't acknowledged by a president of the United States till recently, I think. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's the case. Yeah, it seems like it's only in recent years that these things are being brought up more and more. Obviously, they're, like people have done it in the past, but um, like, which is why I said like, The Killers of the Flower Moon seems like a film for our age, essentially. It's just like summarizing uh, quite well, you know, these things happened and how people are let down these paths through essentially greed and prejudice like it, it can happen to any community essentially um so, uh, i i found Leonardo DiCaprio wasn't that interesting to follow and that whole do you, do you like, agree with me that he was too likable as a character or do you think he was just likable enough he was enough? too he was. Well, I didn't find him likable at all. I found him oh, a simpleton. Okay, and maybe maybe I just yeah, like I, him. I don't know, but I found him too. too. I, anyway, yeah. I think he's meant to be played as sympathetic, and um, like I you, think so. You yeah, you do get you do get the scene where the uncle essentially spanks him. So you, you see, there's a power dynamic there that's been going on for ages that he can't quite escape. Um. Then there's the fight. There's the denouement between um himself and his wife Molly and um. You know, I expected it come up. It was obvious that it was going to come up because he thought he was doing the right thing for his wife. Um, but he didn't. And he I, he I, only did it once. He didn't. Uh, like, he did it once his child died, but he kind of threw his wife under the bus the entire time. And, uh, like, I didn't. Like, I, I had a hard time feeling sorry for him because he was poisoning his wife knowingly. I mean, okay, he didn't know he was poisoning her, but he knew he was doing something pretty bad. And I don't. I don't. I, I think the film wants us to buy that he believed he was doing the right thing. I think the film, that's how the filmmaker said it. I, ju I personally didn't buy that. I thought he was just, he was just forcing it under, uh, in the audience's throat, basically, that, that emotion. Yeah, I, I thought so too. Like, that, I think we were supposed to feel sympathy for him, like, oh, he's lost it all now. But like, he's been committing horrible acts. He knows what he's doing. So I didn't find him sympathetic at all. I found him just too simple to follow. I would have been like my mother's read the book and she told me that um the book is more about the Texas Rangers, the FBI agents who are the federal agents who went in to solve the crimes. Yeah. And I, I would have been interested in seeing that angle of the film. Perhaps that would have been too obvious though. Like but yeah, it's a really well made film. Um, That's that would have been perhaps a little bit too like Mississippi Burning, if you've seen that film. 
where yeah, it's about yeah. the agents investigating a similar situation, right? A later, yeah, later, different, different, different scenario, but a, a similar sort of like outline. Yeah, perhaps because it's been done before, they wanted to try it from a different angle. Yeah. Um, It'd be uh, yeah. I should. I'll, I'll definitely check out interviews of uh, the writers involved to see why they adapted it that way. But yeah, it's a, it's it's a good film. Uh, it didn't um, grab me enough to make my top ten, but yes, yeah, well worth watching. Okay, yeah, we're we're halfway through and it's already been an hour, so let's let's move on to uh, let's move on to the next one. So, Jason, what's uh what's your number five? So uh, I'm going to rush through this egoist. Uh, we both saw it at New York Asian Film Festival, and I think we both rated it pretty highly. Um, yes. Fantastic performances throughout, especially uh, Ryuhei Suzuki, um, just brilliant as the um, titular egoist, the guy who's um, an athlete, brilliant clothes, brilliant apartments, um, uh, very controlling behavior, uses money to control people. And we see him break down, sort of have that control wrested from him when he falls in love with a poorer guy. And it gets involved with the family. And, uh, yeah, there's something a bit, again, obvious about how, uh, issues from his past with unresolved grief over the death of his mother, um, sort of form a weird parallel with, um, his boyfriend. Uh, but essentially what really drew me into the film, um, was the fact that the performances were really powerful. I felt like, uh, the two, uh, men at the heart of the love story were in love with each other. And, um, we were watching a guy, uh, on screen work through, really thorny emotional issues and that the side characters um they felt like real human beings too like the older like the parents who are like accepting of the, the their sons and um kind of like giving examples or, or giving examples of um, how they've loved and maybe lost uh and sort of um, imbuing the central relationship with more uh emotional freight and um so by the end even though you know like some of it is obvious i never felt like oh this is engineered i felt like yeah I, I care deeply about these characters and again i i credit that to the performance um solid direction and um you know great um costumes set dressings uh yeah yeah i think the performances were really what made that film and i think it like the actors were able to handle the ambiguity of of you know what i i think i said who is the egoist in this film and why is he called an egoist and i think we we discussed it then so and like I don't want to rehash it, but I think the the subtlety of the performance is really what I think held it together and really elevated it above what could have just been like an ordinary drama, romance drama. Yeah. And uh, I think at this point we should point out that we've had uh, we've got an episode covering the Osaka Asian Film Festival and the New York Asian Film Festival, twenty twenty three. So you know check them out on the website. Yes, absolutely. Uh, all right. So my number five is the movie Blackberry, which I talked about it before. Uh, this came out fairly earlier in the year, uh, but uh, I still think it's like the best comedy that came out this year. It's not, it's not like, like before, it's not ha-ha funny, but it is just, you know, like uh, in other ways, very uh, lighthearted and, uh, you know, witty and, and just, just pleasant to watch, I guess it would be the other way to, to, to describe it. Um, and it's it's a, just like the title suggests. It tells the story of the company of the people who developed the product uh, from the late '90s till the like 29 to, to 2009, 2010, where the the product uh, like essentially the iPhone completely displaced the BlackBerry market. Uh, and it focused primarily on two people, like Mike Lazaridis, who was the tech expert, who's played by Jay Barrichello, 
or Baruchel, I'm not sure how he pronounced his name, and Jim Boldsley, who was like, sort of like the, the unstable businessman with like really significant anger issues. Uh, and he's played by Glenn Howerton from uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, as they build sort of like the company and the product from almost nothing to one of the most successful pro- tech products in like the history of the world. And it's just that. I mean, it's it's really like a like I I think the like the it's shot. It feels like a movie shot. I think it was shot in 16 millimeter. I, I'm not sure, but it looks like it was shot in 16 millimeter. It feels like something that was like an, an amateur film in the 90s. It has like this grainy look about it. It's like the colors are just a bit off. And the characters always feel a bit off because they're so focused on sort of like they're so passionate about what they do, including the businessman who is just has clearly anger issues and just like screams his lungs out half the movie. I don't know if you had a chance to see it. Uh, no, I haven't. It's not necessarily the type of film I'd watch because it's like a corporate drama. Essentially. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is that. It is that. But it, it, it is funny and I, I enjoyed it. But it, I think I think it, it received. It it received a lot of positive reviews. It's not accurate by any means. I mean, it is sort of like, again, it gets the outlines right, but it takes a lot of liberties and intentionally so to sort of like elevate the drama between the uh, uh, between the people because it's it's sort of like, in my opinion, it's I, I, I've said this before where I don't like biopics very much because I think biopics are just follow the same formula and essentially end up being more or less the same and uninteresting in my opinion. But this one is, a biopic done right because it sort of depicts larger than life or at least on screen larger than life people and it is more about than the people it's about sort of like a moment in history and i think that's when i think biopics really work okay all right so what is your number four jason four my number four um john do you know what a, a bryologist is or a bryologist a, a bryologist a bryologist wait what <laughs> Do you know what a bryologist is? <laughs> no, I don't. I had no idea what one was going into this film. Um, a bryologist is a person who studies moss. So don't say I never teach you anything. Moss, like so, moss, like the plant. The plant. Do you ever take notice of moss? No, I, I ignore it most of the time. I despise it, yeah. in fact. I am, I am I'm a moss prejudiced against moss. <laughs> I think uh, it's quite aesthetically pleasing, uh, depending upon the circumstances. <laughs> Say medieval ruins, but um, essentially, uh, the reason why it led in to this uh, entry with bryologist is because one of the characters in um, Bas Davos's uh, 2023 Belgian drama here is a bryologist. She's a Chinese so PhD the, student. The film is called Here. Here, yes, uh, and it's like 82 minutes long. Um, and it focuses on a Chinese biologist and a Romanian construction worker who uh, encounter each other on the streets of Brussels. Fate or coincidence? Who can say? Uh, but they decide to hang out and look at moss and <laughs> a love story blossoms. Now, <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> sound so interesting, uh, but um, it's essentially a film about seeing what is ordinarily overlooked. And... Um, through these two characters, Chinese biologist and uh, Romanian construction worker, we get snapshots of the wider immigrant community in Belgium and the people back home. And we also get lots of extreme close-ups on uh, Moss. And um, the film creates what I really loved about this film, which is part character study, part sort of um, f- joining the characters being flunners on the streets of um, Brussels, and part Richard Linklater's uh, Before Sunset. 
only with like the pretentious characters and dialogue. Um, what I really loved about the film was just it demanded attention and patience, and it created this um, languid atmosphere um, where we patiently follow the characters and observe them, and they're all performing seemingly small actions, such as uh, the thing that ties the um, ramblings around Brussels together is like they're involved in giving food to friends and family or serving in a Chinese restaurant and they meet various people and uh, through these various people we get a wider snapshot of um, life and uh, yeah we're, as we're watching these people we're hearing these stories and we're seeing people pay attention to others we're seeing people maybe clasp hands maybe give a hug and um, these actions that like seem small have a massive impact especially um like the character the characters as we get to know them we come to care more and more about them and uh yeah i just felt like i was watching two real human beings i was getting to know them and i was so pleased like this great chemistry between the two actors who all, all the actors really and um yeah i was watching human beings i came to really care about um everybody on the screen and um it's a film that has minimal camera tricks. You get like dolly shots. Um, it's mostly like uh, medium shots, um, long shots. Uh, we're observing the characters in the environment. And Bas Devos, at the end, he has this like slow zoom where the aunt of the um, Chinese PhD student, she's like, oh, yeah, uh, you, you've got soup from this Romanian builder. Oh, does that mean you've got a boyfriend? That's essentially what she says. And the camera is slowly zooming. And this is like the most action-packed camera movement in the film. And um, the Chinese PhD student, she she doesn't say anything. She's just this grin spreads across her face. And it's kind of like, yeah, as a viewer, I was so invested in it. I was like, yeah, she's really in love. And I just enjoyed my time with these people that I could read, that I could spend time in a relaxed atmosphere, seeing their connections with others. Um, and uh, reading into those connections. And uh, it's like a complete contrast to a lot of the movies I typically watch, which are like action-packed or like horrific um, films by Lucio Fulci, things like that. Yeah, it's just a reminder, like uh, just, you know, things like constancy and uh, just being kind to people, like massively important in everyday life. And uh, yeah, appreciate the small things such as Moss. I mean, it's I, I had not even heard of this film, but it's quite... It's quite funny because my number four is a different film, but it sounds very, very similar to this one. It's uh, the 2023 film directed by Aki Karismaki, Fallen Leaves. Ooh, I wanted to see it. And it's, it's, it sounds very close to what you described. Not quite, but it hits the same, same of a, a lot of the highlights. And it's, the only way I can describe this plot summary is two lonely people in Nsiki. Uh, find each other but you know like have a hard time getting together until they overcome some of their problems which is primarily alcoholism uh, it's it's a very very simple <laughs> plot and like like your film it's extremely minimalistic although if you know aki karismaki it's uh it's that's his style it's just sort of like it follows his distinct minimalistic absurdist style the world he creates is extremely fascinating it's not moss but it is this almost stuck in the past vision of Helsinki. Well, electronics don't exist tvs don't exist everybody just listens, sits in like a dark gloom apartment with like ugly wallpaper and listens to the radio on like a tiny table uh, and that's how they get the news or like communicate with the outside world 
we do see a computer at one point and we do see a cell phone at one point, but they feel like, like you don't never see uh, people on their cell phones. They see like the way that the main characters sort of like entertain themselves is they go to this like very, very old looking karaoke bar uh, and they sing like strange, like covers of popular, like Finnish covers of popular English songs. And they just kind of like, like they sing it in like a very like matter of fact, like serious, like look in their, uh, uh, in their faces as the camera pans out or like cuts to other like patrons of the bar, just sitting there quietly and just watching the person without any expressions on their faces. I think, I think, you know what I'm talking about, uh, in terms of the, like the style, kind of like how Takeshi Kitano would do it basically. Uh, yeah, it's, I'd summarize Aki Kurosaki's deadpan. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but yeah, it's like, it's like, you know, we know it's in the modern time because on the radio, there are news of the war in Ukraine. But like I said, there are no TVs. Nobody owns the TV. Like, like she has to go to an internet cafe to use a computer at some point to find a job. Everybody works manual labors. We don't see anything but manual labor, manual laborers. And it's, uh, and it's, you know, the main character who is, whose name I forget is kind of, kind of dealing with alcoholism and he has to give it up in order to kind of continue his relationship with his, uh, the star of the film, with like the female star of the film. And it's very simple, but very powerful. Just kind of like what you, what you described for here. Uh, there's like, you know, like it's sort of like a sense of melancholy and, and loss in the film that just kind of pervades through everything. The sound, the cinematography, which is beautiful. Like Arismaki is one of the few filmmakers who shoots in, who exclusively still shoots in 35 millimeters, but he actually makes use of 35 millimeters, like in a way that you cannot do in digital film. Like he takes advantage of like, the unique look of 35 millimeter to just achieve something that you just don't see it in films nowadays. It looks like a movie that was shot in the eighties, basically like, like with all like the artifacts of like the chemical processing and like the, 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 the uneven light at times and all that. It, it just, it just looks unlike any film that like you see today, which is seems like standardized and kind of samey. But the, the one thing that I really like is they live in this, in what charismatic depicts an almost hopeless world, but they, they find hope within each other. So like the hope is in the human connections that is kind of like developing the film. And I, I think that's typical of charismatic. I once described charismatic as uh Wonka why if he didn't sell out. Cause, <laughs> Cause like they both sort of came to prominence in the nineties. They both are known for like different. They're very different. I'm not suggesting that they're the same at all, but they both are sort of like known for very unique idiosyncratic styles. Yet Karzmaki just kept doing the same thing. It's like 2023 and he's still doing the same films that he did in the 90s, right? But uh, yeah. but uh, <laughs> the other one, maybe not so much. Which is fine. I mean, people are allowed to change. I'm not, I'm not criticizing, but it's just a one way to describe him. Oh, Ron Cartwright's living his best life with all that, that big budget. Why not? Yeah, I mean, why, why not? Why? He deserves it. Alright, so we're into top three territory now. Oh, were you going to say oh, something else? Before we before we move, there's a dog in the poster. How important is the dog in the film? Uh, he shows up relatively late. It's, he's not that important. Ah, uh, he shows okay. up relatively late. It's it, it, he's kind of important, but not not that important. It's sort of like uh, honestly, there's nothing important in the film. It's like uh, like a collection of small moments that kind of make up uh, a film that is larger than the sum of its parts. Uh, that way, I would describe it. Okay, but the dog doesn't show up till pretty late in the movie. He still looks cool in poster. It is, he's a cool dog. He's a very good dog. <laughs> right. Um, so my top three, these, I want to say these are interchangeable. Um, I, I uh, published a top 10 on my blog and um, 
I've got them in a different order than I've got them in the sort of uh, notes uh, in front of me right now. Um, so, uh, like, to me, they're all the best film of 2023. Sure, sure. Oh. Well, I'd have to put here there as well. Um, here in that list as well. But uh, I'll go with um, the document I've got in front of me, uh, Chihiro Ito's In Her Room. Now, um, essentially, we're invited to spend 135 minutes hanging out in the room of a mysterious woman uh, in the company of a down-at-heart dentist who's in love with her. Um, she's the unreachable woman, though, um, and he's competing for her attention. And he's also struggling to fit into a world that's full of people who are sometimes indifferent to his existence, sometimes hostile. And it's a film about learning to love oneself, yada, yada, yada. And I think we've heard this one before. Um, but what I really liked about the film was the execution. Again, um, uh, this is a film by Chihiro Ito. She's a veteran screenwriter. She's uh, made some of the biggest um, romance movies. Uh, or she's written some of the biggest romance movies in Japanese movie history. Um, and uh, actually, uh, with this, I think this is her directorial debut. Um, she shows she's got a very distinct vision. She knows that filmmaking is more than just um, storytelling via dialogue and um, narrative can be established through atmosphere. And um, that's what I really enjoyed about the film. Like uh, the visuals are excellent at pulling back the masks on the psyches of the various characters. Um, so you've got like canted angles to show when they're losing perspective on a relationship, the ball's use of colours like oranges and reds telling us about anxiety and rage. And there's um, some startling CG as the um, dentist finds that he has love rivals and he just loses his mind in anger and gives in to a moment of jealousy. And uh, I felt like every visual choice that Chihiro Ito made uh, made the familiar mysterious. And it's always the more interesting option for material that we've seen before. And it always maintains this dreamlike, smooth atmosphere. Um, and um, In Her Room became a very stylish anti-romance that I enjoyed watching multiple times. Uh, and again, like the, the room at the heart of the story is this great set where you've got uh, an apartment full of plants and a large aquarium. And you can hear the sound of jungle creatures and water lapping at the shore. It's just this real dreamlike atmosphere to the place. And uh, becomes hypnotic uh, at times as you lull into like a sort of relaxed state, and uh, even as calamitous emotions are being unleashed on screen. And um, I would willingly rewatch it again. Um, and uh, yeah, I think Chihiro Ito is another talented director that we should watch out for. I think it's her first film, and. Um, she had two films on the festival circuit last year, 2023, Side by Side, which is Osaka Asian Film Festival 2023's closing film, makes a pretty good accompaniment to um, In Her Room, but I think I prefer In Her Room a little bit more. And uh, yeah, I actually got to interview her when um, she showed her film at the New York Asian Film Festival. So again, uh, if anybody's interested, please check out my blog where you can find the interview. All right. Yes, yes, of course. So my number three is the Spanish film Society of the Snow, uh, which also received a lot of attention. And it is about the rugby team from Uruguay, the true story of the rugby team from the Uruguay, who, who in the 70s uh, was part of a, of a plane crash that uh, fell in the South American Andes, I believe. 
Um, yeah, this has been turned into a film before, right? Yeah, uh, uh, a live, a popular actually film, but very not not as accurate and not as good, in my opinion. In the nineties, yeah. an American film. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, but uh, the team falls falls on the mountains in the snow. Uh, thankfully, it's summer, but uh, it's spring, but early spring, so it's still quite cold. And they're forced to stay there in freezing conditions for over two months, seventy-two days actually. Uh, and eventually, they're forced to survive by any means necessary, which includes cannibalism. But you know, don't don't they don't eat each other? They they eat the dead, so it's slightly better, I think. Uh, I don't know. I think I think I could master eating someone's dead if it was like a matter of life and death. Uh, I think I'd wander right into the wilderness and hope nobody but, came after oh, me. It's so cold. It's so cold. So it's been. It's been. So I was watching this and like it, the temperature just fell here. So right now, yesterday it was yesterday morning was negative eighteen degrees Celsius. Mm. So that's cold. So I went outside to get the mail. So we're talking about a five minute, not even uh excursion to the outside and i just couldn't handle it so imagine being stuck for like that for two months it's really hard to think it's really hard to do anything but i would compare this movie to last year's all quiet on the western front not because they're the same they're not but it's just how real they seem and just like that movie made me really feel like i was there experiencing the world with the war with the actors this one was so well made that it made me feel like I was experiencing the cold and the conditions with them. I was experiencing their, their, their like fears, their, their concerns, their just anxieties, their, their, even their hope when they had glimmers of hope in, like in between sort of like the whole lot of the terrible thing that happened, especially like the one avalanche scene, because they're also like victim of an avalanche uh, that happens to them. And it's just, it's just so brutal. And it makes you feel like you're there. It makes you uh, feel like you're just, just your part. It's just <laughs> my heart was racing just because I, I kind of I was experiencing the fear that they uh, experienced, especially like they, they would have like these really close up shots and they would just all scream, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. It's so cold. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it. There's going to be somebody else who's saying like, you have to take it. You have to you have to hold on. You have to hold on. And they were just like, you know, there were people who are unprepared for this situation with like because they only the plane split in half. So these people were just in the front of the half, so they barely had any supplies. They didn't have like their baggages or anything. They just had like a little bit of stuff that they had to make do. So it's it's really really brutal. It's really, uh, uh, just just a harrowing depiction of what the events. Much much more than the like the the previous film that uh, that was made uh, of the same of the same story. And the one thing that I really really enjoyed is uh, like unlike a lot of other films that are tend to be disaster films or something like that would qualify this as there was no intercharacter like conflict here the entire conflict was just purely man versus nature uh and i appreciated that i think there was no need to sort of like cheapen it with like like inter interpersonal conflicts that or like just to add drama to that it was just everything was just so so stressful that they did not need to do that and i think that just elevated the film and made it like deservedly like one of the like high, most highly regarded films of the of 2023, I expect this to be nominated for an Oscar. Although I don't know if it would win it. Yes, yeah, like a touchstone for these types of stories is Lord of the Flies. Where yes, like kids turn into savages essentially. Yes, but the, but the thing is that like they didn't turn against each other here. That's the fundamental difference. Yeah, like uh, yeah, we have to remember Lord of the Flies. I think it was written by a guy who was an alcoholic and going through a divorce at the time. So I did not know that, but it makes sense. Yeah, 
Yeah, like, don't quote me on that, but I think that's the background behind it. And uh, there have been, I've read other stories of, like, um, um, there's this economist from Holland, Walter Bregman, I think his name is, and uh, he wrote about these boys from Papua New Guinea who got washed away after um, uh, hijacking a boat and they uh, landed on an island and they actually worked together to survive on the island and then they got back home and everybody was surprised. Oh, you survived. So, yeah, human nature is not necessarily naturally given to being terrible. <laughs> But in this one, there is like, they do stick together and they do genuinely help each other to be able to, to survive as much as they can. Uh, yes, they eat their friends, but they're dead. So they don't eat anybody alive. And they do this thing where they have this debate of, of like, what's the difference between this and donating your organs? And then like one of them says, uh, well, they, they give consent to donate their organs and everybody just happens to say, Okay, so if I die, you have my consent to eat my body. Uh, and everybody eventually said that they don't say all at the same time, but eventually everybody says that at the at the movie at different times. Where they so so it is it is you know like a, a, a positive story in that sense where they all kind of pull together in these terrible circumstances. If anybody's thinking of eating me, I don't have too much flesh on my bones, so it'd be a bit disappointing. <laughs> uh, there, oh, there's like a, a scene in the end where they've like they even run out of bodies, and you can see like the skeletons, like they pick the meat out of the bones dry. It's like there's nothing left. Like that's how much how that's how long they've been there. Uh, oh well, there's always bone marrow, I guess. I don't know. It's I don't know if you can get that with your bare hands in like the cold. <laughs> <laughs> too much effort. <laughs> uh, yeah, but anyway, so that was my number three. What's your number two? Uh, right, uh, this could be my number one, um, Sekai. So Marina Tsukuda, it's a mid-length film, just like here. It's minimalist, naturalistic performances. Um, it's a film about the small things. It demands patience and observing the actors. Fantastic cast. Um, Wait, what's the title uh, again? Sekai which oh. is um, ja Japanese for world. Um, and um, essentially, it's got languid mood, again, naturalistic performances, um, not much in terms of non-diegetic elements or theatricality. It's very much being um, placed in uh, a, a position of observing uh, two females living in a small uh, town in Nagano Prefecture. One's a 30-something musician. It with is a, you said it's a short film, right? It's uh, mid-length. It's the type of film that you might not see on the f outside of a film festival. Could, okay, I see. It, um, but I just found it one of the most wonderful films of 2023. It's essentially uh, like a female musician um, half-heartedly pursuing her passion and a high school girl who's got a stutter, at, stutter and um, delicate family life at home. And uh, she's trying to keep a low profile because, like, she doesn't get along with the people around her. They're both struggling with confidence issues and face um, uncertain futures. And we get a snapshot of a few days in their lives as they negotiate um, awkward social interactions, like um, angry mother and um, sort of people at the recording studio who are like, "Oh, when are you next going to perform?" And uh, uh, the film asks us to be patient and to concentrate. Um, the camera's focused on their faces, um, and we're seeing the details, um, the emotional information in the body language, um, how they work up uh, the courage to press forward, how gaps in sentences in their replies indicate a lack of confidence. And I've really got sucked into the atmosphere of, and the interpersonal relationships and um, really enjoyed interpreting 
um, how they, how the actors were, um, conveying the characters. And uh, again, this is one of those films where I'm like, I really, really, really care about these people who are struggling. Um, but they're showing resolve to keep moving forward, um, in life. And, uh, yeah, it's just, I remember at the time of the Osaka Asian Film Festival episode, I was really, again, emotional recounting a certain scene where a schoolgirl, <laughs> I get emotional again. She's just like, ah, oh, this is line where she's had a really bad day and she's, she peps herself up by reminding herself, like, the world is big and it's full of cool things. And yeah, it's a really moving film. And I hope more people will get the chance to see it, but I don't know if it'll happen because short, it's the the short of... films are, are, don't make the rounds as much. Exactly. You have to, like, occasionally there'll be a website that might screen them. There might be a, um, sort of retrospective on a career or yeah. something like that, but it, which is a shame because this is a wonderful, wonderful film where you'll care about the characters and it's really genuinely life affirming and, um, yeah, I really hope more people can see it. Um, but this could easily be my number one. In fact, I think it would be, I should have put it as my number one. But yeah, that's my number two. All right. So, um, my number two is The Holdovers. Directed, oh, I've heard good things about this. Directed by Alexander Payne. It's set in the 70s, actually 1970, I think. Uh, and it tells a story. It's a sets in Massachusetts. It's, it tells the story of a boarding school teacher who is forced to stay at the school. Uh, it's an all boys uh, boarding school. Very stereotypical. Exactly what like old fashioned. Exactly what you think when you first you know first think of boarding school. Uh, but it's the teacher played by Paul Giamatti, who's forced to stay at school to take care of uh, the children who can't go. A few children who can't go home at Christmas. And he clearly hates this job, and he doesn't want to do it. Uh, and also, the children, of course, don't have to say that. It primarily focuses on the teacher and this one student uh, who is has a particularly bad relationship with his parents. Uh, has a, a one of his uh, parents is uh, stuck in a in a, like a mental institution, and his mother is sort of like all but forgotten him. And of course, Paul Giamatti's character has his own problem. He's uh, He's essentially like feels himself out of place in the institute. He cares about about what he teaches, but the school is all about just kind of like you know preparing people and 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 like collecting paychecks from like the rich patrons of the of the boarding school. Uh, the the so yeah, basically that's the story. The there's also oh, the the school's cook is also there, and she's also an important character played by Devine Joy Randolph, and she does a fantastic job. The the acting is really like the top, uh, like top notch in this film and it's it's really what makes the film so memorable though it, it is also very well directed the one thing that i've always enjoyed about alexander payne is he makes uh, he depicts the places that he makes films about really really well so like whether it's have i hawaii or nebraska or or like massachusetts now he we talked about you said about how great scorsese does it depicting like 20s uh like uh, america in like a Kills of the Foul Moon, but this one, the depiction of Massachusetts in the 70s is also just exquisite. It it feels so authentic and so apropos of the story that he's trying to tell. It feels like this story can only be told in this in this setting and this setting alone and nowhere else. Uh, maybe in England, it could be told in England as well because it has that very, well, it is New England after all. So it, it has very, very like that feeling like it's like the school is stuffy and old fashioned and and very, very... Uh, reminiscent of that kind of like uh, scenario, setting and scenario. And uh, how did you see it? 
I recommend. I think on Netflix. I think it's on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Okay, I'll definitely check that out uh, after recording it. Okay. And it's very enjoyable. And it's it's it's. I would classify it as like a comedy. Like again, not ha ha funny, but but you know, like has a few humorous moments. It's not. It has a few serious moments, but it's by by and large a very lighthearted film. And like I said, the acting is just. I would be. I would not be surprised if at least some of the actors win awards. I think. I think the the woman that plays the cook won a Golden Globe. Hmm. Uh, but I would like Jamadi may may also win something. Uh, like I guess she may win against something in the Oscars. I wouldn't be surprised because it's it's so so good. Yeah, Killian Murphy took the Best Actor in Drama okay. uh, award at the Golden Globes. Okay. So all right, all right. So let's uh, let's race towards the finish line. What is your number number one? So my number one is Okiku and the World, another New York Asian Film Festival film. Um, so it's essentially it's a story, uh, uh, a love story, um, written and directed by um, oh, di- uh, Junji Sakamoto, veteran director, and it's a, a about the love between uh, the daughter of a fallen samurai, a high caste woman, played uh, with a fiery aplomb, a uh, comedic aplomb, because she's very funny, uh, by Haru Kuroki. And a lonely, lowly manure man played by a single named Kanichiro. Um, he's a rel- I would say he's a relatively new actor for many people. Um, and essentially his job is to troll the toilets of Edo era Tokyo, uh, for his stocking trade. And it sets at the end of the samurai era when the country's opening itself to west, up uh, to westernization. And, um, we see pure romance amidst Heaps of images of poop, manure, human effluence. Which would be, you yeah. know, is that typical of Junji Sakamoto? I don't think I've seen a single film of his. No, actually, uh, I think like historical dramas are quite rare. He tends to deal with contemporary subject matter, but they're all very um, character driven. And um, yeah, this is another film where you really come to care about the characters because they're really well written and the cast are enjoyable to watch and um the recreation of edo era tokyo um tokyo um is fantastic um the framing of scenes where you've got streets and houses offering actual frames around the characters very interesting and it's got black and white scene which makes it beautiful to look at and uh, the nasty elements easier to stomach and you've got a bit of samurai politics uh you've got a lot of um critiquing of um the class issues between the characters and it's funny seeing Haru Kuroki trying as the samurai daughter trying to adjust to living in a row house with poor people essentially and you know she's trying to maintain her dignity and routines um and uh yeah and it's really affecting seeing the characters around the central couple nudge them in the right direction towards realizing their love and they grow into themselves and come of age just as Japan um, transitions to becoming a more democratic society where uh, human rights start to emerge. And uh, yeah, I just like the way the thematic elements really um, were woven together. And um, yeah, as well as being a film about recycling and reuse, which makes it a very contemporary drama. <laughs> uh, so yeah, great love story found it really affecting and um that was one of my most enjoyable films of last year okay so what's your number one my number one is something that i, I did mention to you in chat and that's 20 days in mariupol uh a documentary by 
I don't know if I'm pronouncing this, Mistlav Chernov, who is a, a Ukrainian like journalist, but who works for the Associated Press uh, in America. And he was in 20, he was essentially stuck in Mariupol for 20 days during the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And he sort of like documents and films the various suffering of some of the Russian citizens, uh, civilians, during like the early stages of the invasion. And he's primarily set it at the hospital. So we see a lot of people that kind of like have rushed in from various interesting injuries, a lot of children. It is so disturbing, so harrowing. It is more, I would depict it more disturbing than a lot of the horror films that I've seen. Some, some of the most graphic horror films that I've seen have nothing on this film. It's, it's just that explicit and that. So you see, you see a pregnant woman from a, like a maternity hospital that was bombed, uh, kind of essentially with half her gut out. And like she, we find out that later she doesn't survive. Uh, and uh, and then we see children being brought to the hospital, many of which don't really make it. We see, you know, like doctors trying to do their best. We see, you know, like citizens trying to survive without power in Mariupol. We see uh, like all the like the uh, the draconian measures that they have to take just to, you know, like stay out of like the Russians' way uh, as they are make make their way closer and closer to the city. And I think eventually Mariupol falls. Of course, the journalist is out by then. Mariupol falls after the journalist to make it out because he's only there twenty days. And he's depicting, and it's the film does something like very interesting. It uh, it sort of shows because he is in Mariupol, and then films during the day, and then when he has time, he kind of sends that to the Associated Press, and that footage makes the news. So this is a, like made of a lot of footage that we've kind of seen in the news throughout. But then the documentary cuts out to like Russian television and how they try to like uh, uh, they try to explain and try to, to to justify all of that by claiming that they're actors or that it is fake footage, or that it is CGI, and all that, whereas we see the documentary in real time, and we see the context to which that was a film, and it's, of course, look way too elaborate to be fake, and that kind of becomes obvious in, in, the, uh, document, but in the documentary, but you also see, you know, they still like Ukrainian citizens that think that, oh, this is, uh, uh, like, this is the Ukraine that's bombing us, it's not Russia, and it shows how easy it is for anybody to kind of be to be a victim of misinformation. And it's just, the documentary is just so, so well made. It's just a, a well-made documentary from a filmmaking point of view, but it is also so, so sad. And so, I don't know how to describe it. So disappointing that, you know, this is came out in 2023 relatively recently and the war is still going on, right? And this was at the beginning of the war. So it is definitely not an optimistic documentary, even though I don't know, did Mariupol get freed? I think Mariupol, I, I think got freed eventually. Uh, Ukrainians have taken back a lot of territory, but it seems like um, front lines are, are fairly static now. Yeah, but like I said, it it is a very depressing documentary. It's not it's not for the faint of heart just because of that, but it's also because of the the many many graphic images that it portrays. Yeah, so it's, I guess it's like we're currently witnessing a lot of conflict around the world, so it has a wider resonance beyond just sort of Ukraine, Russia, and uh, like the whole misinformation thing is a really interesting angle as well. Yeah. So how did you watch this? On Amazon, I think. Okay. Okay. So yeah. Try, yes. Try and so check it, it that one So it is on out. streaming. It is, at least in the US, it's available, like uh, either to rent or to stream. I don't remember if I paid for it. You might have to pay for it, like a the re- online renting fee, but but it is available. It has been released to home media, basically. Yeah, it's... 
I think it's one I'll have to brace myself for because it sounds harrowing. It is. It is very graphic. They blur some stuff, but you still like there's no illusion about what you're seeing. It's just very, very, like I said, think of the most graphic horror film that you might have seen and it has nothing. Well, your knowledge of horror is a lot more expansive than mine, so I shouldn't say that. But again, at least in my experience, I've never seen a horror film quite as scary as this. Well, yeah, real life is scarier than any horror movie. Of course. You don't have that sort yes. of distance of theatricality. Of course. Anyway, so that was my number one, and I think that concludes uh, our top 10. So would you mind just running through the titles of your films from 10 to 1 really quickly, Jason? Just so we have okay, a summary. so, yeah, if I could. Uh, so my number 10, if I can go back in my notes, uh, my number 10 was, oh, Nomad by Patrick Tam. Uh, number nine was Oppenheimer. Number eight was The Killer. Um, number six was Mountain Woman. Number five was Egoist. Number four was Here. Number three was um, In Her Room. Number two was um, Sakai. And number one was uh, Okiku and the World. All right. But they could all be number one. Yes, yeah, <laughs> of course. Uh, okay, so mine are number 10, Plan 75. Number 9, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. Number 8, The Clone Tyrone. Number 7, Monster. Number 6, Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, number 5, Blackberry. Number 4, Fallen Leaves. Number 3, Society of the Snow. Number 2, The Holdovers. And number 1, 20 Days in Mariupol. Uh, all right, so that is our number, our, our top 10, our respective top 10s of the year. Uh, are there any, just very quickly, any honorable mentions, any disappointments, anything that, any extra that you would like to mention towards the end of the episode? So, uh, I suppose honorable mentions, uh, Monster and Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I like um, I uh, Christoph Krzyzewski's The Double Life of Veronique and um, Christian Petzold's Undine and um, Transit. Oh, but that's not was- 2023, though. I know, I know, but I, I really, really like those films. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Um. So for me, Barbie and Oppenheimer, those two, I didn't put, I didn't, but I was impressed by both films. Uh, for Oppenheimer, for reasons we already mentioned, Barbie, I was pleasantly surprised by, by how much I I enjoyed it. Um. Uh, what else? A Room of My Own. That 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 was the Georgian film that we saw at the Osaka Film Festival. Yes, uh, I I spoke highly of it then. It didn't like again. I saw better films since then, but it it was. I think I I still remember it very fondly. Uh, Past Lives, uh, that's uh, like okay, a, okay. A, a new Asian American film that that kind of seems to make the news. It didn't impress me as much. Uh, it felt like it. It felt like a romantic drama that I I had seen before. Like even though I can't quite point my finger to it, it it didn't feel like very new. It felt like okay, this is something that we've seen before. But it's still nevertheless yeah. like a, a pretty well-made film, regardless. Uh, I Very do have, well made. As always, I, I I will mention a few, a couple that disappointed me. Uh, one is Boys Afraid. I don't know why I I was I had a high expectation. And it, I think genuinely the first thirty minutes of the film, which for I understand was also the basis for the short film, was good. But then it just kind of completely falls off the rails after that. And I did see Anatomy of a Fall the film that won the the Cannes Film Festival and I don't understand how this won that's that's I I thought it was a good film like I thought it was a, a nice 
murder mystery, a slightly disappointing ending, but I found it disappointingly ordinary. I don't, I, I don't understand how this one can. I don't know if you had a chance to see it. No, I haven't. Yeah, I don't uh, know. Maybe maybe I'm missing something. Like I said, good film. I have no complaints, but just I felt like there were better films that can that should have won, and I don't know why this won. Did you uh, like Triangle? I think you felt the same way about Triangle of Sadness as well. Uh, did that win? Can I, I mean I that wasn't that was my the, my top two the year that before. Was, no, because I put that as number two last year, so I don't think I would have felt the same. Although I don't remember what I okay. said. Uh, okay, yeah, maybe I was having a conversation with someone else. Maybe, maybe someone else. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, but anyway, anyway, uh, there. I mean, and of course, we have to take them out that there are a few films that I I suspect might have made my top ten, but I just haven't seen yet. And like you know, the boy of the hair, <clears> and I don't know if you had a chance to see that one. No, I haven't. Yeah, so that one I would love to see it. Maybe that would make my top ten. I don't know, but the zone of interest that was another one that seems to be very highly anticipated. Yes. The new Ken Loach movie, that one I'm like I would be very eager to see. I just haven't had the chance. Perfect Days, that's another one that I really want to see, and I just haven't had a chance to watch it. Mm. Uh okay, but I think we can end our discussion here, uh, because the episode is getting quite long. But why don't we finish with the news, Jason? Why don't we just go there and like let's say we end the episode there? So is there anything interesting news wise that has happened since last time we spoke, which has been a long time admittedly, so we can't cover everything. So, quick run through. Uh, Golden Globes, Oppenheimer, five wins, including Best Motion Picture, Drama, Best Director, Best Performance by an Actor, and Supporting Actor. Murph, uh, Killian Murphy and Robert Downey Jr., respectively, Best Original Score. In terms of Asian success, we've got uh, Best Drama in Limited, uh, Best Limited Drama Series, Beef, um, and that also won Best Actor and Best Actress for Stephen Yun and Ali Wong, respectively. And uh, that was in the TV into, category, right? Yeah, I think it's a Netflix show. Um, you're right, I think. And then, right. yeah, best animated motion picture went to The Boy and the Heron, uh, by Hayao Miyazaki, and that's the first Japanese film to win that category. Uh, and it was up against Makoto Shinkai's Suzumi, Suzume, sorry, um, the Super Mario Brothers movie and Spider Man Across the Spider Verse. So, and um, Asian Film Awards 2024 announced uh, their nominations for this year. Um, Ryusuke Hamaguchi's Evil Does Not Exist and Kim Sung Soo's Korean uh, blockbuster 1212, The Day, uh, both dominated uh, uh, the news with six nominations each, including Best Film um, and Best Director. Um, and uh, yeah, we've also got uh, else in terms of. Um, uh, film festivals. We got Japan Film Tour Foundation Touring Film Festival 2024, touring the UK from February 2nd to March 31st. Um, there will be 24 screen uh, films screened in um, a selection of 24 films screened in 36 cities across the UK. Titles include Egoist, Shinya Tsukamoto's post-war drama Shadow Fire, award-winning mystery drama A Man by Kei Ishikawa. So A Man is probably one to look out for because it took eight prizes at the 2023 edition of the Japan Academy Film Prize, including Best Film, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor for Satoshi Tsumabuki, and Best Supporting Actress for Sakura Ando and Nana Seno. And um, Rotterdam International Film Festival are going to launch at the end of January, and um, there's a selection of Japanese films. 
And we'll end with some uh, Blu-ray and digital and DVD releases um, in the UK and um, possibly for collectors around the world. Third Window Films are going to release Mad Cats on January 29th, an action comedy from first-time feature film director Reiki Tsuno about a slacker who goes on an adventure to rescue his older brother from a cult made up of uh, cats and um, gunfights ensue. Um, we've got River, uh, the latest time-slip comedy from the team behind The Infinite Two Minutes, which releases on DVD, Blu-ray and digital on February 12th. Oh, nice. I'm looking and forward to that. Yeah, and uh, well, bonus um, features on the Blu-ray um, and DVD include interview with director Junta Yamaguchi, one hour-long making of, and a trailer, and it's going to be an all-region DVD and Blu-ray. And we've got One Percenter, a film by Tak Sakaguchi, uh, released on March 11th. It's about an action hero who uh, has to fight back against Yakuza gangs who take over the film set as they go looking for loot on an abandoned island. And yeah, uh, Third Window Films have also acquired um, Shadowfire, Shinya Tsukamoto's post-war drama, which I mentioned earlier. And that won the NetPack Award for Best Asian Film at the Venice Film Festival, so that's definitely one to watch out for. And it will also screen as part of the Japan Foundation Touring Film Program uh, in the UK. And uh, that's it for releases and uh, festival news. I don't think the list for the Berlin Film Festival has been released yet, has it? Because that's I coming up. I haven't seen anything. It's yeah. Usually it takes place in February. February, it? yeah, no, February. It's like less than a month from, or about a month, maybe almost exactly a month from now. But uh, all right, all right. So that's that's fine. Yep. Uh, in terms of Rotterdam International Film Festival, we have a healthy Japanese component. Uh, we've got uh independent films from uh first time director Toshihiko Tanaka and um uh Urawa Matsubayashi, both dramas when uh, dealing with the Me Too movement, the Arara Matsubayashi film. And she, that's a um, uh, subject she's tackled before on films like um, Kamata Prelude and um, Saga Saga, both of which screened at Osaka Asian Film Festival. And we've got uh, highly regarded anime Blue Giant screening at Rotterdam. Uh, Risuke Hamaguchi's Evil Does Not Exist. Um, and uh, we've got uh, contemporary dramas from Takahisa Zeze a boxing drama um, called uh, One Last Bloom. And we've got Shadow of Fire by Shinya Tsukamoto. And um, we've got uh, a classic, which is highly regarded, called The Great White Tower. Won lots of awards when it was released in Japan back in 1966. It's essentially set in a university hospital in Osaka. And um, you get... uh, the competition between two students to assume the leadership of a medical department and um, it won the 40th Kinema Jumpo Award. Best 10, it was first place. Best director, um, screenplay, and so forth. And uh, yeah, uh, those are some of the Japanese films that screen at Rotterdam. Um, yeah, a brief run through. Uh, so I think this is a good place to end the episode. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long Final run. thoughts, final thoughts. Final thoughts, yes, of course, of course. Final thoughts. What what are your final thoughts for the year, for the episode, for the for the upcoming year, maybe? What uh, whatever whatever you think uh, it's it's worthwhile saying. Uh, yeah, really uh, anticipating the uh, films coming out uh, in twenty twenty four after a strong twenty twenty three, um, and uh, we're seeing Asian film go from strength to strength. Last year was really good, um, and we're seeing more releases uh, in twenty twenty four. Uh, my list was full of love, hope, and optimism, and um, that's how I'm going into the new year. Um, how about you? Yeah, that's good, of course. 
uh, I, you know, I was enjoying with my list, but I, I forgot, I forget if I mentioned this in the beginning, I had an easier time making my list last year than this year. This year I struggled a bit. I'm not as happy with, um, with the films of 2023 as I was with the 2022. I'm not saying this is a bad year necessarily. I just, I think I enjoyed 2022 a little bit more in terms of the films that I saw. I was glad I found some Asian films because I thought initially I thought it would be mostly non-Asian films, but you know, I re- like the few Asian films that I watched like monster, like plan 75 were, I think I'm glad they kind of made their way into that. And they're all available. Well, they, those two in particular are available in the West. So yeah. yeah so plan 75 was not streaming anywhere, but it's available for rent. Yeah. Uh, looking forward to continuing season four. We've got a lot of female action heroes to uh, watch. And most likely our next episode, which is, you know, we don't know when it's going to be. We have to discuss our timing uh, because, again, we're, you know, we have lives outside this podcast, which can take priority sometimes. Uh, but most likely it's going to be the one that we would do before we kind of like ended our season prematurely, which was Lady Snowblood, right? Yes. Yeah. So I, I, we, there's no reason not to just like, resume from that point. So that's most likely going to be our next episode. So with that, uh, we bid you farewell. Uh, if you have any caution, questions, comments, suggestions, concerns, let us know at heroic-purgatory.com or on Twitter at heroic-purgatory, all, all in one word. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. 